We're looking this morning at the subject, the fellowship of socialization. Now, all through this series, we've been trying to get away from this subject. <laughs> the idea that fellowship is just getting together, talking, having fun with one another, conversing, learning about one another. And the reason I kept moving it, moving it, moving it, moving it to, I moved it to last. Because normally we think of fellowship as that. We think of fellowship as ice cream and cake, cup of coffee, social times together. And so I've tried to show, show that koinonia is used throughout the scripture in a far deeper sense than that. But now we come to this last message, and guess what? The word is also used in terms of fellowship, getting together for food and coffee and chit-chat and all of those things, but, but with a spiritual twist, and that's what we want to look at this morning. First thing you'll notice in your bulletin outline is that being alone, from God's viewpoint, being alone is not good. It's not good. I'm sure all of you are aware of the fact that many people have assumed a lifestyle in which they literally, literally drop out of society. They are sometimes given rather unpleasant labels. Hermit, bum, hobo. Street people, gypsies. In the extreme, such people might be given the label of sociopath, which means a person who has taken a pathway in life which is extremely anti-social. He or she wants nothing to do with their fellow men. I mean nothing. That's a sociopath. It's actually painful for such people to come into contact with others because they have such an aversion to social interaction. And so they reduce themselves to the bare necessities of interaction. Oh, they might go grocery shopping, but they'll, you know, they'll be out at grocery shopping at 11 o'clock at night when the stores are empty. They might go to the doctor, but even that is rare. No phone, no TV, no computer, no newspapers, nothing that brings the evidence of other people in a society into their homes. But that's rare. That, that is extremely rare. This is generally not the case. It is not the case with these labels that I've used, hermit, street people, hobo, and so on. Sometimes people choose this kind of lifestyle because they have an aversion to work <laughs> or to house payments or they don't want to pay taxes or they want to live on the fringe of the law. And so they move out of society in order to do those other things. At other times, circumstances are such that society has no place for them. During the Great Depression, thousands of people were out of work. Thousands. Food was scarce. They had soup kitchens everywhere. Money was even more scarce. And so people moved from place to place, scavenging for food, for shelter, for clothing, whatever could be found. I think you've probably seen some of the newsreels, especially on the History Channel or something like that, of how people lived during the Great Depression. It was not pretty. 
And it was far removed from anything that we're experiencing even today and when they say our economy's in the, in the slump. I have to laugh when commentators come on today and say, well, this is just like the days of the Great Depression. Well, they need to go to the History Channel or get some of these newsreels and take a look of how people really lived. My grandpa worked for the Reading Railroad in Pennsylvania during the Depression, and it was not uncommon for hobo cities to spring up along the rail lines which afforded people the opportunity to hop a freight train to destinations unknown in the hope of landing work or finding food or whatever. Grandma, my grandma, would take hobos into her house for the night to feed them at least one good square meal a day, and they would then sometimes sleep on the living room floor, or in the summertime they would sleep on the front porch, and the next day they would be gone on their way to destinations unknown. Now this was in the day when one did not have to worry about housing an axe murderer or a thief. They might be hobos, but they weren't thieves. She had all of her pretties sitting out, you know, real silverware, things of that nature, and she didn't have to worry about that at all. These hobos were just people who adopted a non-social position because society had nothing to offer them. If they were married and had children, sometimes the wife and the children would go off to live with their parents, but the husband was unwelcome, and so he's the guy that became the hobo. And uh, very unkind things happened uh, back then in terms of that. Well, you're not part of the family. You're just an in-law. You're not welcome here. But they took mom and the kids Dad, you hit the bricks, and off he would go. Now, God never intended such to be the case. In the original six days of creation, God's summation of his work was this. God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were completed in all their vast array. Genesis 1. Verse 31 and chapter 2, verse 1. But even with this stupendous work of creation, something was missing. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the beasts of the field and all the birds of the air. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all of the livestock, all of the birds of the air, all the beasts of the field. But, but for Adam, no suitable helper was found. Genesis 2, verse 19 and 20. Verse 18, the Lord said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Verse 18. And then in verse 21 and following of that second chapter in Genesis, we have the event. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and closed up the place with flesh. And then the Lord God made a woman from the rib that he had taken out of the man and brought her to the man. And the man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. That's what the word 
woman means. He goes on, For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and they will become one flesh. Genesis 2, 21 through 24. So, as good and as plentiful as the animal and bird population was in Eden's paradise, they were not compatible with Adam. His paradise was not good because in the vastness of the creation there was no suitable helper found for him. Dr. Doolittle might talk to the animals and they to him, but that's the kind of stuff fairy tales are made of, not reality. The reality for Adam was that he was alone and God pronounced being alone not good and proceeded to do something about it. Now you know this as well, don't you? I mean, all of us appreciate being alone at times. I mean, if we want to pray or we want to read or we want to contemplate or if we want to just sit and soak in the quietness of our surroundings. Being alone is seen as a blessing, not a curse. But these times are scheduled by us. That is, we take deliberate steps to isolate ourselves from family or friends so that we can collect our thoughts, so we can connect in a special way with God, so we can restore some sense of stability to our insanely busy lives. And so long as we choose these moments, aloneness isn't bad. But at best, they're temporary, aren't they? But loneliness, loneliness, that's another matter altogether. In loneliness, we approximate what Adam experienced. Oh, he had his daily work to do. He was dressing the garden of God and he was caring for and naming the animals. He kept his hands and his mind busy. But in the end, he was lonely. And he was lonely because he was alone. Oh, not rocket science here. Some people have tried to resolve the pains of loneliness by submerging themselves in their work. I mean, at least there are fellow employees at work, people to talk to, people to laugh with, people to interact with. But you know, Solomon discovered that becoming a workaholic has its limitations too. He writes, Yet when I surveyed all that my hands had done and what I had toiled to achieve, everything was meaningless. A chasing after the wind, nothing was gained under the sun. And so I hated life. Listen to Solomon. I hated life because the work that is done under the sun was grievous to me. All of it is meaningless. Is it chasing after the wind? What does a man get for all the toil and anxious striving with which he labors under the sun? All his days his work is pain and grief. Even at night his mind does not rest. This too is meaningless. Ecclesiastes 2. Verse 11 and follow. So we substitute one problem for another problem. It might not necessarily solve the problem of loneliness. 
Bottom line here is that God has made us to be social creatures. Being alone was declared not good. Even an unmarried person must seek and find ways of social interaction with fellow employees, with friends, with relatives. And volunteerism has been an open door for anyone willing to interact with others. And guess what? Church fellowship, church fellowship is the open door for believers. Because we have other issues in terms of fellowship. We want to fellowship or partner with people of like mind, like faith, like trust in God. So the first point is alone, being alone is not good. You say, well, I do just fine being alone. Yeah, well, you, that's your evaluation. You probably have some quirks if that's what you're doing, <laughs> if you're all alone and by yourself. Secondly, we are to party with a spiritual purpose. Few would deny that the people of the world know how to party. For them, almost every weekend is party time. You know, it's what they live for, TGIF. Thank God it's Friday. That's the slogan that says it all from the world. But the world's definition of partying has nothing to do with God and godliness. They might be thanking God it's Friday, but just because now we can party from Friday night through Sunday. Well, how are they going to party? Well, the world's definition of partying has nothing to do with righteousness. Let me read for you. The acts of the sinful nature are obvious, writes Paul. Sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery, idolatry, witchcraft. Hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this, well, there are people that live like this. Those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. Galatians 5, 19-21. And Peter tells us, that this was our lifestyle, at least for many of us, before we became the people of God. He writes, You have spent enough time in the past living what like pagans choose to do. How did they choose to live? Living in debauchery, lust, drunkenness, orgies, carousings, and detestable idolatry. 1 Peter 4, verse 3. Now that's living to the world. That's their idea of partying. It's their idea of fellowship. But there's another kind of partying which has nothing to do with immoral conduct and everything to do with social interaction that is very beneficial spiritually. In the Acts 2 passage that we read today, the believers of the Jerusalem church, it says, every day, every day, they continued to meet together in the temple courts and they broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Acts 2, verse 46 and 47. That's a different kind of partying, isn't it? Now observe, this was not communal living. Now each of them had their own homes, but they entertained people in their homes for meals and for social interaction, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And I suspect that this continued until such a time as the escalation of persecution 
which took place under Saul, would naturally fragment the group and make them more cautious as to where they met and with whom they met. They tried to avoid public attention, but they didn't try to avoid one another. You know the church in China, which is basically an underground church, is a church in China. They don't try to draw attention to themselves, but they don't forsake the assembling of themselves together. They meet in people's houses in all hours of the day and night. Communist government, or no. Threat of death, or no. They're not going to give up meeting together in fellowship that is socialization. Do you know that Jesus did not attempt to avoid parties? In fact, Jesus was seen at many festive occasions, not all of them restricted to believers. His first miracle, the wedding at Cana. We read on the third day, a wedding took place in Cana of Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the meeting. John 2, verse 1 and 2. And that's first miracle. They ran out of wine. There was jugs of water sitting there, or they filled the jugs with water. And that water was changed into very excellent wine. You say, what? what? Jesus made wine for people to drink? Yeah, he did. Say, oh, well, it must have been non-fermented, right? I mean, it must have been grape juice. Look at the Greek word. It's the same word for wine that's used everywhere in the New Testament where if people overindulge using that wine, they get drunk. Formented wine. Shortly after that, we read, Now one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him. So he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. They, they laid down around a table on like lounges, and that's how they ate. Not the um, Da Vinci's portrait of the Last Supper with the disciples all sitting around a table and Jesus in the middle. That's not the way it went. And that's not the way it went here at the Pharisee's house. So he's at this Pharisee's house. He's been invited to dinner. So he goes. So he went, we read. When a woman who had lived a sinful life in that town learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster jar of perfume. And as she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. Luke 7 Verse 36 through 38. And on this occasion, there's a spiritual lesson. Because the Pharisee was thinking in his heart, mm, if Jesus knew the kind of woman who's pouring all this affection on him, he would be repulsed. She is a sinner. She is a prostitute. So, we read, then he, Jesus, turned towards the woman and said to Simon, Simon's the Pharisee, Do you see this woman, Simon? I came, into her, I came into your house. You did not give me water for my feet, 
But she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss. But this woman, from the time I entered, has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, for she loved much. But he who has been forgiven little, loves little. Then Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. And now we read, the other guests, this is a party, see? The other guests began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you, go in peace. Luke 7, verse 44 through 50. Jesus went on occasion to these parties, these outings socially. On another occasion, the Lord met with believers and with friends, as he ate at the home of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, their friend, his friends. And you remember that Martha was all consumed with meal preparation, while her sister was at Jesus' feet along with his disciples to learn from him. And Martha became upset. We read, she came to him, Jesus, and asked, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to, to do all of the work myself? Tell her to help me. Martha, Martha, the Lord answered. You are worried and upset about many things, but only one thing is needed. And Mary has chosen what is better, and it will not be taken away from her. Luke 10, through four, verse 40 and 42. The lesson here is this. Do not work for food that spoils but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. On Him, God the Father has placed His seal of approval. John 6, verse 27. So you see how Jesus interacted with people, socialized with them. And the point of all this is that He made time for people. He gladly attended various festivities so that He could interact with them. Sometimes it was with the religious elite, other times it was with the poor and underprivileged, and at still other times it was with his friends and his disciples. And he was so much engaged with social interaction that his reputation, as stated by himself, was this. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and you say, here is a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. But wisdom is proved right by all her children. Luke 7 34 and 35. He's saying the results say otherwise. I may have partied with all kinds of people, but you have never found me to be drunk. You have never found me to be a glutton at the table. There has been no compromise of godly decorum, and the people love me for pointing them to God's forgiveness. Look at the fruit of my socialization. <laughs> And that'll prove to you, I am not, as you have charged me, of being a glutton and a drunkard. But you see, whenever you do things like this, you open yourself up to those kind of accusations by the world. If you were to drink a glass of wine in front of an unbeliever and say, I thought you Christians were against drunkenness, you know, and they would have you labeled like that. So we need to watch those kind of things. 
Now secondly, look at your outline. What is the biblical perspective on how to view this kind of socialization? Well, number one, you're, you can view it as an occasion for God to be glorified. In 1 Corinthians 10, verse 30 and 31, Paul writes, and by the way, he's, he's talking about being invited to dinner by an unbeliever. Well, if he's an unbeliever, uh, he might serve you something that's not kosher. <laughs> you know, may not be Jewish. Not me. It might be something that you would be offended by. Here's what he says. If I take part in the meal with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of something I thank God for? Here's his logic. So, here's the conclusion. Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. 1 Corinthians 10, verse 30 and 31. It's not what you're eating. It's how you're eating and how you're conducting yourself. And do it to the glory of God. Sometimes, brethren, we are restricted from fellowship by our own taboos. We exempt ourselves from a dinner invitation because, oh, they're going to serve pork. Or we may be offered a glass of wine. You need to watch doing that. Or something is going to be served that we do not particularly like. One of the things our children wrestle with is teaching our grandchildren to be less vocal on asserting their likes and dislikes at the dinner table. It's not uncommon for one of the grandchildren to state it for all to hear, but I don't like... Brussels sprouts, <laughs> or whatever it is. Well, we grandparents have thick skin, so we're not concerned about being offended by such statements. But the corrections have to be made because the day will come when these same children will be dinner guests at some other person's house who will be less understanding of such outbursts. Patterns are being developed which may last a lifetime. I see in the scriptures <clears throat> that Jesus went everywhere and ate whatever was set before him. He did this because food was not the issue. Fellowship was the issue. How to glorify God through his actions was the issue. He did eat with prostitutes and tax collectors or thieves. He did eat with unwashed hands at times. He made wine and drank wine without getting drunk. He did it all. And he lived by the principle of doing all for the glory of God. And just as we learned last week, God doesn't think the way we think on things. Martha must learn that ingesting spiritual instruction at Jesus' feet is more important than eating dinner on time. And Simon the Pharisee must learn that a poor sinner distraught over her sin is more important than the fact that she has a sordid past and yet dares to weep tears from her sinful eyes on the Master's feet. Which did not concern the Master, but... To this Pharisee, ooh, ooh, this is anathema. This is not, this shouldn't be. 
Now my question is, what other taboos or restrictions might you be placing on your fellowship that keep you from socializing to bring glory to God? You're tired at the end of the day? I'm sure of it. You have aches and pains? I'm, I'm, I'm just going to beg off. I'm so, I'm hurting. Let me ask, was Jesus never weary? Was he never in pain or sorrow or anguish over what he had experienced? Did he then become a hermit? Did he then become a social dropout? No, he functioned in a way to ever bring glory to God. And he snatched up the opportunities to socialize if it would bring glory to God, if it would be a teaching opportunity and so on. That's the next point. We need to mingle to minister. We've already seen how the Lord would use social situations to minister to others. Sometimes he ministered as an evangelist to reach the lost. At other times he would mentor his disciples in things that only he could teach them. At still other times he would have a, a large times of healing the sick. And people would actually bring their... This was be, before medicine and modern doctors and all of those things... There were a lot of ailments and problems that could not be solved except by miraculous intervention. He would heal them. All day long he would do that. Imagine how tired he would be at the end of the day. These principles of social fellowship had, as we have already seen, the goal of bringing glory to God. But now, but now we discover that what brings glory to God involves ministry to other people in those areas where we have opportunity to interact. And as a starter, and I'm just using this as a starter, we might take those three areas where we see Jesus having ministered. Firstly, to evangelize the lost. Evangelize comes from the Greek word for the gospel, euangelio, meaning the good news. To evangelize is to tell people the good news that God made a way for condemned and hell-bound sinners to be forgiven and brought into a peaceful and loving relationship with God in which God no longer views them as enemies but as His children. People need to hear this. Now obviously if you're going to do the work of evangelism you cannot be a hermit. You have to get out and about where people are. Unfortunately, if you're employed, being in the workforce brings you in contact with others, most of whom will be estranged from God. So you men, when you go to work, you're going to fellowship to the glory of God. Here's one of the ways you can do that. You can think in terms of how you're going to reach those estranged. I know some of you, I won't name you this morning, but I know some of you right here in this room have Bible studies with some of the men at work. So you're, you're doing the work. of, and, and these aren't saved people at work. These are unbelievers, but they're just kind of curious about what the Bible has to say and, or this subject or that subject, and you're, you're having Bible studies with them. Wonderful. Now, if you're homebound, you'll still have family. You will still have friends who fall into the same category who need to hear the good news of God's salvation. Timothy was told by Paul, but you keep your head on in all situations, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist. 
discharge all the duties of your ministry. 2 Timothy 4, verse 5. And some will protest and they'll say, well, yeah, but Timothy was an apostolic student and eventually became a pastor. Well, is that what you think? Uh, then your protest is telling on you. You are assuming that the only ones responsible to give forth the good news of salvation are the professionals or the paid staff of the ministry. Wrong. We're all called to do the work of an evangelist. Consider then the fact that the disciples of John the Baptist were directed to follow Christ by John, which they did. And we read, turning around, Jesus saw them following, and, they, and, and he asked, What do you want? And they said, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? Come, he replied, and you'll see. So they went and saw where he was staying, and he spent the, they spent the day with him. And it was about the tenth hour. Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, was one of the two who heard what John had said and who had followed Jesus. Now listen. The first thing Andrew did was to find his brother Simon and tell him, we have found the Messiah, that is the Christ. And he brought him to Jesus. And Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, son of John. You will be called Cephas, which when translated means Peter. John 1, verse 38 through 42. What's this? This is a brother bringing his brother to Christ. Do you know that most people come to salvation through the witness of another family member? They do. You are called to be interactive with others by giving them the good news that the Savior of sinners has come. And that Savior is one, and his name is Jesus. The work of evangelism through fellowship. Secondly, what about mentoring a disciple? Jesus did that. Let me say that I, as the pastor, I, as the pastor, cannot meet with everyone and fellowship with everyone on a personal level. Some of this work is laid on your plate. Most recently, the women's group, SOS, Sisters of Scripture, went to the elderly and the shut-ins of our church to minister to them through music and prayer and scripture reading and testimony. But they ministered in another way. They modeled before each other how to be a disciple of Christ. They walked in his steps. They did what he did with regard to his disciples. If you ladies can plug into that group, you need to plug into that group and learn how to fellowship in terms of ministry. Are you shy about ministering? Shyness by any other name is simply fear. Just another name for fear. What's the cure for fear? John tells us. There's no fear in love. But perfect love drives out fear. Because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. There's the defect. 1 John 4 verse 18. Picture a person who's afraid of water. 
It's a warm, sunny day, and the family has taken a trip to the beach. The parents get chatting among themselves, and they ignore Junior wandering out into the bay to the point where it drops off into the deep, and soon they see and they hear the desperate cries of their drowning child. Now, Mom, who is afraid of the water and maybe doesn't know how to swim herself, does what? She will run headlong into the bay with total disregard of her fears. Why? For the love of her drowning child. That's why. Love dries out her fear. And so the cure for fear is to learn to love in such strong and unrelenting ways that our fears will be subdued out of love for God and out of love for the ones to whom we are called to minister. Those who cannot bring themselves to stretch themselves beyond their own personal comfort zones because of fear are defective in love and they need to go to work in this area. When I became your pastor 30 years ago, most of you probably would not have known that I was a person that suffered greatly from being shy. You shy? Oh, boy, that's the biggest one. Yeah, true. Social interaction with others, not my cup of tea. Now, I knew this about myself. I did. I said, what kind of a minister are you? You, you work with people. You got to talk with people. You got to go pray with them. You got to counsel with them. You have to interact with them. You have to teach them. You have to love them. How can you possibly think that you have been called into the ministry when you oh, so shy? So here's what I did. Here's what I determined to do. I joined all the committees I could join in Lapeer County where I thought I could serve the community where I would be forced to deal with strangers in those committees. Now you see, it's one thing as you get comfortable. I'm real comfortable with you folks. After 30 years, you'd think I'd be comfortable. Okay. So I went to a place where I knew I would be extremely uncomfortable, to committees populated by utter strangers. I was new to Lapeer. Didn't know anybody in Lapeer. Didn't know you. Even, that's what I began to do. I wanted to be with strangers. I wanted to force myself to interact. Not only have I done that in the committees, but I've taken on chairmanships of the committees or secretaries of the committees to keep all the minutes, keep things going. I've written the bylaws for the committees. And I'm not tooting my own horn here. I'm saying this was therapeutic. I was working on this principle that I read here in 1 John. You know, love drives out fear. You've got to love people to the point where you're not afraid, where you can interact. And yeah, I'm not appreciated everywhere I go because of the Christian testimony and witness, but I still go. And I still do because we're called to be mentors of others. 
Third area of Jesus' social interaction was the healing of the sick. Now, we're not going to have, do not have the gift of healing others by laying hands on them or, or having them touch the hem of our garment and be healed of their cancer. But there are things we can do. If any of you are sick, writes Paul, he should call on the elders of the church to pray over him and anoint him with oil in the name of the Lord. James 5, verse 14. And even if you're not an elder, you can pray. You can pray. And you can go to people who are sick and pray for them, right, alongside of them in their homes. You can do more. You can mimic Jesus' ministry. The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is on me, he says, because the Lord has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives, and release from darkness for those that are in prison. Isaiah 61, verse 1. We admire the Good Samaritan because he went to him, the guy that was mugged along the road, and banished his wounds pouring on oil and wine, and then he put the man on his own donkey and brought him to the inn and took care of him. Luke 10, verse 34. You see any particular gifts that you need there other than compassion? That's all you need. Compassion, a few bandages, hydrogen peroxide, maybe some alcohol to clean the wound. Do you know that even the Philippian jailer, as a brand new convert to Christianity, the brand new convert to Christianity, knew what to do to help Paul and Silas. We read, At that hour of the night, the jailer took them, washed their wounds. Then immediately he and all his family were baptized. The jailer brought them into his house, set a meal before them. He was filled with joy because he had come to believe in God, he and his whole family. Acts 16, verse 33. We need to be able to mingle to minister to others. Yeah, we can help people with their physical needs and problems, counseling and so on. Now the third principle is this. And we're talking about fellowship as socialization. Fellowship worthy of the name. There is no fellowship worthy of the name if Christ is shut out. Remember I talked about partying. That Jesus would go to parties and so forth. But of course he was there. So Jesus was at the party and so forth. And that's the point I'm bringing out. If God is to be glorified in our fellowship, if the ministry of Christ is to be mimicked, then Jesus must be the recognized, unseen guest in all of our social gatherings. The text we read from Revelation 3 was not written to the unsaved. It was written to the Laodicean lukewarm church of believers whose apathy and indifference to spiritual progress had landed them a tepid taste in the mouth of the Savior who was about to spit them out in condemnation. His church was going sour, going cold. They weren't there yet. They were kind of in between. Oh, sickening, lukewarm taste. So here's his appeal. Jesus' appeal. Those whom I love, I rebuke 
and discipline. So be earnest and repent. Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If any one of you Christians in this lukewarm Laodicean church hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and do what? Eat with him and he with me. To him who overcomes, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne just as I overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. Revelation 3. 19 through 21. So Jesus knocking at the door is not, as this text has been abused, Jesus knocking on the door of unsaved people saying, let me in. The doorknob's on the inside. You have to open the door. And if you open the door, I'll come in and save you. No, 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 no. It is Jesus saying to his church, you know, I thought we loved one another. I thought we were in fellowship with one another. But you have shut me out. You pushed me out the door. And I'm on the outside knocking. Let me back in. Let me back in so that we can sit down and eat together as we used to. So we can socialize and fellowship. I with you and you with me. Peter put it this way, it is time for judgment to begin with the family of God. And if it begins with us, what will the outcome be for those who do not obey the gospel of God. 1 Peter 4 verse 17. Your first and foremost responsibility as a creature of God is to get right with God about your sin. And your help does not lie within. It is outside of you. Christ must do the work from within. And he will become the savior for all who plead for mercy and forgiveness and healing. Well, it's a glorious thing to be in fellowship with God through His Son. To know God by way of His Son. And that's the only way you're going to get to know God. The only way you're going to be safe in fellowship that moves you from here to heaven. From condemnation to glory. Let's pray. Father, thank You for Your Word. Thank you for this series on fellowship. If we're a bit timid about socialization, Lord, help us to learn how to love. And not love ourselves, of course. We love ourselves already, and we love ourselves too much. But to love others to the point where they become more important to us than our own feelings of insecurity. Help us in this because we are family. We're brought into a family. It's not good for us to be alone. You said so. We are social, social creatures. 
But we don't want to be like the world that's partying on the weekends with drunkenness and gluttony and immorality. We want to be able to party or fellowship with one another in the body of Christ so that it's more like family getting together for a feast, for a festival, for Thanksgiving, for Christmas, with joy and gladness. I pray that you'll help us to see one another in that light. And for everyone here today who does not know Christ as Savior, there is a sense in which he is still shut out of their life because he's never become a part of their life. And I pray that today, O oh Lord, you would grant that faith they do not have and that repentance they will not yield to you so that today, Lord, you might draw them one by one, here one, there one, into your family for your glory, that your kingdom might be extended by one or two or whatever, and Satan would be deprived of someone from his kingdom. For we Christians who are timid and shy and having trouble with interaction, Lord, let us not put Christ on the outside. Let us embrace him. We say we love you. Let us show that. Come in and dine with us once again, we ask, for the glory of Jesus. Amen.